0: Would you like to hear insight based on decades of experience, both advising applicants to a variety of healthcare programs and working in admissions offices for, again, many different healthcare programs? Well, today's episode is a ticket for you. Dr. Emil Chuck, Director of Advising for the Health Professional Student Association, is our guest. Please pull up a chair.
1: Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams.
0: Welcome to the 561st episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Do you know how to get accepted to medical school? Accepted does, and we share that knowledge and insight in our free guide, Med School Admissions, What You Need to Know to Get Accepted. Download your free copy at accepted.com slash 561download. Again, that's accepted.com slash 561download. Now I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Dr. Emil Chuck. He is today the Director of Advising Services for the Health Professional Student Association, which among other services and assets, hosts the Student Doctor Network, a major resource for applicants to and students in the healthcare fields. Dr. Chuck earned his Bachelor's of Science in Engineering and Biomedical Engineering from Duck University and his PhD in Cell Biology from Case Western Reserve University. He began his career in research, but then moved into higher ed administration and admissions, serving at different times over the last 20 plus years as a student advisor and test prep teacher for Kaplan Test Prep, and then founding health profession student advisor for five years at George Mason University, director of admissions at Case Western School of Dental Medicine, admissions consultant for the ADEA, director of admissions and recruitment at Rosalind Franklin University, and for the last two years as director of advising services at the Health Professional Student Association, or HPSA. On SDN's forum, he is known as the prolific, helpful, and extremely knowledgeable Dr. Smile 12. In addition, he has also served in numerous volunteer roles for professional organizations. Dr. Chuck, welcome to Admission Straight Talk.
1: Linda, it's a great pleasure to be part of your podcast, and thank you
0: so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's just start with some really easy questions. Your background, where you grew up, how on earth did you get interested in admissions from biomedical engineering?
1: Sure. So a little bit about, I guess, uh, the stuff that's not on LinkedIn uh, certainly is the earlier background about me. So I'm proud to say that I'm a first-generation student. My parents emigrated from Hong Kong a couple of years before I was born. And so of all the places in the entire world where I guess in the United States where I would be born and raised for about 17 of my years before going to Duke was Shreveport, Louisiana. That's Northwest Louisiana. Um, Not anywhere near New Orleans, so just let make sure people know. And uh, basically, I grew up in a you know, in that city, uh, that little small town in Northwest Louisiana, and now apparently the home district to our current Speaker of the House, uh, you know, for all, for not that that's, it's, it's, it's something just to, it's a little bit of a trivia note. I don't know him. So I know we, we had, had another guest
0: from Shreveport, Louisiana, and I'm trying to remember his name. He was a fantastic guest, really interesting story. He became a, an orthopedic spinal surgeon. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just, an, I mean, of course, I'm blanking on his name right now. But, anyways, go ahead. That's yes. So, Shreve, Shreveport okay. has two has two fantastic people who grew up there. Okay. All right.
1: So, so that's at least one of the little. I guess it's an important fact, but a little known fact in terms of you know how I, it sort of shaped my, um, I guess, my worldview one way or another. Uh, obviously, at the period of time when I was growing up, I was involved in a lot of, I guess, research pro- type projects and did science fairs, was involved in medical research at the medical school over there at LSU Shreveport um, before moving on to ultimately apply to all the various, you know, schools that I tried to for undergrad and ultimately wound up at Duke. So biomedical engineering wound up being the field that I was really most interested in. And had I kind of gotten an idea ahead of time how really tough it was (laughs) to do biomedical engineering and want to become a physician or become a doctor, um, I would have probably thought a little bit, you know a little had a little bit more of a pause before going. but I think in retrospect it really fit who I was at the time. I was much more of a math science problem solver solver type person and knowing very well you know some of my my strengths at that time, memorization is really not one of the things that I did very well <laughs> in. so biology courses weren't so great compared to my math science and engineering courses so, Uh, It was to no surprise of mine that obviously I didn't get into medical school, but I did get a lot of background in biomedical research, uh, including the fact that during the summers when I was at Duke, I would be spending my summer uh, doing research at the National Institutes of Health. So there's a great summer research program there if you happen to be even a high school student, a community college student as well as an undergrad and obviously now post-bac programs and so forth. They have a very robust program for people who are really interested in research to spend time there. So that's where I really learned a lot more about being a, quote, physician scientist. Now, I know we'll probably date ourselves a little bit here. This was still sort of at the, the cusp of the dawn of the Internet. There really wasn't much known about applying MD, PhD. So I was fortunate enough that they did have some programming at the time where they featured MDs and MD-PhDs doing research. And so I kind of got in my mind the idea that I should apply to medical school so I can do research like they do at NIH. And no one really sort of steered me as much as I probably should have to really consider the true, just straight-up PhD application. And so a lot of things have, you know, as I said, I, I've learned a lot since then, and I do reflect a little bit more on my own personal journey on uh, getting into medical school on the PhD side. Now, as a PhD student, I wound up working as in a research project with in biomedical engineering, but working in the Department of Pediatrics and Pediatric Cardiology at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in uh, Cleveland at uh, University Hospitals of Cleveland. And I basically wound up going to grand rounds. <laughs> I would be talking to residents. I would be going to seven o'clock, you know, grand rounds in the mornings as if I were a resident. And so I really got a sense, you know, sort of skipped the med school side (laughs) and just kind of got a sense of what clinical training was all about. So I think that kind of satisfied my itch for wanting to go to medical school. uh, And I didn't have to pay med school tuition at the time (laughs) to learn what I wound up learning. So I have a lot of that insight into doing clinical research as a scientist, as a med- as an MD and medical residence, and so forth. So, after doing a stint in biomedical research, wanting to become a faculty member, these didn't quite, you know, didn't go in that direction. I wound up really gravitating towards uh, doing more in in education, especially as a professor. So, my position at George Mason University allowed me to also teach. So I would teach introductory biology, I would do a lot of the administrative things regarding setting up an advising system, and so forth from there. And it really, that period of time, those five years, was really seminal in giving me more insight into you know what a university does to really shape students to be prepared for various health professional fields. And, and I think that's something that I think gave me much more insight as, you know, as I look at applications, when I went to admissions and I would look and visit campuses, I I have a certain lens when I look at campuses, that's probably a little bit different from many other people when they visit um, or admissions recruiters. Well, a lot of things that I can tell you certainly is understanding the student support side. uh, What's available for students when it comes to the, the support system that they have with learning services, with cultural services, commuter student support, a lot of support for veterans, those sorts of things that, you know, aren't really obvious when you look at an application. But if you really start digging deep and see certain patterns in terms of this person's a commuter student here, and this sort of restricts them from participating in certain clubs... You kind of get a little bit more of a sense of what the advising support exists, and what exists for those for those individuals who are not your traditional, you know, traditional students. And I think that gave me a little bit more of a broader view when it looks and when I look at applications and sort of the diverse ways that people get into the journey to become a health professional. As I said, I I know I can I can certainly commiserate with the various. uh, pre-health advisors and the uh, supervising staff, the DEI, the diversity, uh, the diversity and student affairs individuals. I can get a bit of a better sense of what some of the challenges that they are facing and how that could be reflected on the way that students perceive themselves or they seek help when it comes to the writing center for essays or for interview help. They go to the career center and and those sorts of things. So just really trying to get a sense of the pulse of the school, what the culture is like at that campus. And once you have that, if you have that filter, which you know if you visit all these campuses, you can also carry that filter with you as you look at the various mm-hmm. programs, you know med school, dental school, or whatever else have you. So those filters are what I carry with me, especially when I go and I do a lot of the advising online um, with SDN over the years. so uh, that's I guess a lot of other interested little things and and I guess in ask, answering the question how you got interested in admissions, I think overall workforce issues have been something that have been part of me even in my research days. So the issues when it comes to diversifying the healthcare workforce are very similar to why aren't we diversifying science fields in general? Why aren't we getting more diverse people going into research and uh, becoming faculty members and so forth? So a lot of the same questions really wind up resonating over and over again. So my interest in admissions is that it's a you know at least med school admissions there's a little bit more of a more formal structure compared to grad school admissions and so i just sort of stumbled into doing med school admissions because i had to do it before when i was a med stu- when i was a pre med student so right. th- there were a lot of things that um, you know i was able to identify with I knew how challenging the science material was. I knew what courses, how rigorous they were. So it kind of, everything sort of fit together very nicely in that it's something that's an extra on top of things that I would know how to teach. So uh, admissions wound up being something that people really recognized, and um, I wound up being very good at it. I I felt so.
0: (laughs) You are. You definitely are. So so you're now the, the Director of Advising for the Health Professional Student Association, or HPSA, to make it a little bit less of a mouthful. And how does it benefit people interested in careers in the health professions?
1: So first of all, the Health Professional Student Association, we've been around for about 25, 30 some odd years, wow. basically to try to support people uh, who are from rural or underserved backgrounds, achieve their dreams to become healthcare providers. Really? Ultimately, yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, the goal is to re- to return to their communities to provide uh, healthcare services as professionals to their home community. This organization has been around for that long a period of time from, a, I, I guess, vestigially, it was a different type of a research group, but predominantly run by physicians who were from osteopathic medicine and who were trained as army physicians. So, a lot of them were very interested in the same workforce challenges that we still hear nowadays about why we right. have such a maldistributed healthcare system and how people who are in need in rural and underserved areas there's just not enough healthcare providers going into those areas um so they wrote some papers way back then so there's a history of some sort of white paper research that this organization has had and you know back about 25 years ago pretty much the dawn of the internet at that time uh they saw that an online forum an online community may be something that can help facilitate people who are in need of mentors or in need of role models to communicate with them we're glad to say that after 25 years it still happens a lot of people who are who are students way back when 10 15 years ago are now you know attendings and residents and in, are in hopefully in good shape in their careers uh you know 10 plus years later and uh it winds up being really nice to see them being able to contribute back to the next generation or generations of uh, incoming uh, healthcare providers. And uh, I think that's one of the great legacies that the HBSA is trying to build upon. And so how I think it benefits people who are in, in these careers is to realize that there are people who are in this community who are willing to help support you. And I think that type of network where can give more frank advice, you know, much more, I get, and I hope professional sounding advice on the forums, I think is one place where I think we can build a community that can last, you know, obviously at least a decade or so. Uh, and that's well, done that more
0: think, than that already.
1: Yeah. It's definitely, Well beyond a
0: decade. So, yeah. so at,
1: at least um, that, that's at least one of the things that I think is a great legacy that uh, we're trying to build upon with more resources and uh, more, more tools that uh, can help individuals who can't afford, you know, you know, much you know, more like admissions consulting services and charges, and um, you know, at least try to help people who don't have those types of means get to where they would like to be.
0: All right. Now, there's HPSA and there's Student Doctor Network or SDN. What's the? I mean, obviously, SDN is an online place, and HPSA is an association, but. Like is how would you distinguish their purposes, or do they have the same purpose and simply a different venue, online, offline?
1: Sure, sure. And that's something that I know we're developing a little bit more in terms of brand identity and recognition. So, Hipsa obviously supports and is the is, and supports and nurtures the student doctor network, which comprises not just the forums, but also a lot resources. of these free donor supported resources. So, things like our pre med planner. Um, we recently have a, an activity finder. We have uh, our 100-day hundred day, day MCAT planner. We also have the, our archive of articles that we've had for about, about 20 years or so, I think. Um, so we really try to provide sort of like as a, you know, SDN is kind of a media outlet uh, okay. in terms of a, a forum, a, a community town hall, but an opportunity for people who really are interested to use us as a resource. Obviously, hmm. a little bit earlier in the pre-internet days, there were also booklets to help to tell people and help people know what you need to do to apply to med school, optometry school, vet school, and so forth. Um, before the days that finally those professional societies decided to build their own websites and material to do the same thing. So SDM is kind of a media outlet of HIPsa and HIPsa, I think is much more of, I guess we're we we seek partnerships and we seek projects uh, to try to also help support. You know whether directly SDN or to also support the overall mission to help people from underserved or rural backgrounds or you know, underprivileged backgrounds to get more insight and get more support so they can enter a health professional field and also be retained within and, and uh, succeed in the health professional field as well. Certainly in the earlier stages, for sure. So we're doing a lot more to see. You know what in the current era in the current stage of things would be of interest to people who are thinking about health professional, uh, supporting health professionals, especially individuals who we want to direct them towards rural and underserved communities. And so we're doing a lot on on the Hipsa side of things to see if we can develop programs and things that can be grant funded, or we can collaborate in partnership with other, say, nonprofit organizations or academic institutions, amplify some of their impact a little bit further. So We've been successful um, in one of our projects right now. We're helping with a uh, grant from one of the uh, schools in, in Texas to promote an online curriculum that they've been developing that focuses on HIV and HIV mm-hmm. prevention. And so um, we are in the process of really trying to help them and support them in trying in, in promoting this toolkit, not just to obviously academic institutions, but also to students and get more student sure. voices and resident voices to be part of that process.
0: Makes sense. Oh, sounds good. What are some of your favorite resources either on SDN or within HIPSA?
1: Sure. So, well, I will be proud to basically promote my resources that I've developed over the last (laughs) few years, too. Um, So, I mean, there's plenty of really fantastic resources that people go to for SDN um, a lot of times. But I think one of the things that we are trying to do that I I have it under both HIPSA and SDN, but a little bit more of a HIPSA project, is to develop basically an online resource to really help students with their applications. And I know we'll talk a little bit about application advice later on, but I, many schools nowadays have, like, sort of what I call the bread and butter pre med 101 type course, which is you know things that you need to do to have a really good, strong application regarding your experiences, your grades, and how to write a personal statement and so forth. It, there are certain bits and pieces of that that exist online in SDN, either on the forums or in article. So I didn't necessarily want to recapitulate all of that material. Instead, as you kind of hear nowadays, there's so much more of a focus on, you know, mission-driven admissions and holistic review that I don't know if there's really as much of a very good toolkit for people to navigate that. And, I, and I'm not just limiting it just to Applicants, but also people in admissions and people who are advisors. You know, what is exactly does that mean? Um, and we could go into that a lot more too. So the Becoming a Student Doctor curriculum that I, I've developed is a curated resource of uh, basically mostly open source material that, depending on who the audience is of this course, really addresses some of the big key issues that are facing that's facing health education in general as it pertains to competencies, as it pertains to DEI diversity and inclusion and belonging, as it pertains to upcoming challenges that are gonna face the community and, and the world in general, as well as healthcare. Looking at all those things and how each of the schools and programs are addressing those issues now, I think can help an individual student, can help advisors, can help admissions people kind of figure out how to communicate what really, how mission is really realized in these programs. And that's something that most of us who've been trained in uh, advising, you know, it's really hard to grasp. <laughs> so, so this is hard resources. to just
0: differentiate.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to differentiate unless you really kind of know. And it's also always, it's always changing as well. So, keeping on top of how all of the schools or how all the programs are talking about it or what pro or what specific projects they are highlighting is something that would be very useful for most of us as we read an application and as we kind of interview candidates who say, yes, I want to go into healthcare because I want to be part of, you know, I want to help underserved individuals. Well, that, you know, again, trying to demonstrate that as a mission fit is a little bit challenging. <laughs> so. So this is what the course is really designed is to kind of help provide a little bit better language, a little bit more insight on on the details of what is actually meant there. So you could actually make a better fit uh, and alignment with various schools that you're trying to choose to and want to be part of. So that's the course. Um, we make it free for anybody who would qualify for fee free assistance program. It also comes, it's basically my textbook, as it were, because it comes with me being able to help them with their application and any sort of, and obviously SDN, the free resources that are there too, but I can help them give feedback on their applications, on interviews, or whatever else have you. So it's, it's meant to complement what, you know, general questions that they usually will have about an application process and sort of going through going through the challenges of, of, you know, a very lengthy and very stressful period of time, waiting for waiting for answers or waiting for
0: decisions. Right. What are your plans for HIPSA and SDN going forward?
1: So going forward, in addition to that course, which we're, you know, we're trying to help, you know, we're trying to see how this could help current first year, say medical students or first year health professional students, we really are trying to look forward to um, other opportunities where we can really uh, expand, you know, the becoming a student doctor sort of impact. So there's organizations that are looking at professionalism that are, that I think there's some overlap with what we're covering and what they're covering. So we're looking for a lot of partnerships there. We're looking for a lot of other partnerships in higher ed in general, but other ideas about HIPSA and SDN right now, we're certainly in the Post pandemic, you know, era, I guess, of health professions. And I guess the term nowadays that I hear in higher ed is the Gen P, the generation pandemic student uh, that's going into uh, undergrad and now is going to be appearing uh, on the doorstep now for uh, the health professions programs. And so we're really trying to get a handle on what this new landscape looks like. So uh, most recently, we've been doing a lot of focus on the virtual interviews and the virtual experiences that many students are having when it comes to the application process. So starting off with situational judgment tests. I know Casper has been around, as you know, for a little bit over a decade. Well, this new situational judgment test, the AAMC preview <clears> exam, <throat> exam, is now just starting to, to emerge. And so we're trying to get a handle on what this these two tests are playing a role in overall health professions admissions we're also looking at a lot of other virtual interviewing platforms um, not just the live interviewing platforms because everyone had to shift over to zoom or um, webEx or those types of platforms for interviews but there's other there's other technologies that are out there that you can also do say your own version of a casper or a pre or not necessarily a preview exam but you can do your own recorded video interview Oh, yeah and we're starting to see a lot of that and you probably are starting to see a lot that a lot of that too it's definitely caught hold say in, de- in for the dental admissions group and in some cases for physical therapy but at, but you're starting to see them also emerge in medical in in allopathic medical school admissions for sure it's it's fairly um,
0: common in business school admissions
1: very common in business school it's going to be a little it's a little more common in in a lot of other in in other fields other than we were we're all coming a little bit late for us. So we wanted to get a better handle and give people a little bit more insight about what that's like. And so I think one of our big challenges for plans for moving forward is we've been known for this great interview feedback database that's gone right. on for you know a long period of time.
0: Since well, the
1: nineteen nineties. Since the nineties, exactly. <laughs> Um, So we now have to modify that quite a bit. Obviously, MMIs that came around about a decade ago, you couldn't put a lot of questions from those situations in there. And now with these virtual interviews, you have a lot more questions that you can ask um, because a lot of students are asking, well, do I need to go to these meet and greet sessions and does that count for or against me? I mean, they technically shouldn't count against you, but you never know, I guess. So. But you want to hear, well, what sort of questions were asked at the meet and greet? Is that something that we should put in this database? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I hope we right. could. I think that would be that be great to have in there. And so so we're really trying to go through and figure out how do we create a new interview database and um, interview feedback question database so that future people can know what they need to prepare for when it, uh, you know, when they, when is their turn to apply. So. That's one of the big plans that I, I know we're definitely at least I'm involved with working with them about in uh, a lot of surveys that we're doing with regards to situational judgment tests, the video record the recorded video interviews, and maybe even other topics that I that may be of interest to you know people who are trying who are currently applying or currently in these types of programs just to give us some feedback Because we want to know what can we do to help people who have no access and no idea that these things are happening. And once they hit the application process and they get surprised about I've got to take this Casper test or I've got to take this preview test, what is this about? Yeah. Um we wanna we wanna lower that shock. <laughs> At least let people know it's you or know, the anxiety this is something...
0: level.
1: <laughs> exactly, the anxiety level. So
0: all right. Let's let's turn to the admissions process. Again, you, it, the introduction in terms of what Hipsa and SDN do is has been fantastic, but I know you you have enormous experience and tremendous insight. I'd like I'd like the listeners to benefit from that more directly in terms of what they're doing now. So, let's say somebody wants to apply to medical school or dental school. Just let's just leave to those two very broad categories. What's your best advice for them? Somebody starting out their exploration, they're, maybe they're thinking of applying in 2024 or 2025. How should they be approaching the process?
1: Well, I think one of the big conundrums is how early is too early? Well, it's never too late, I guess, is the first thing. Uh, I think for people who are really interested in those fields, obviously shadowing being, you know, finding people to talk to is really one of the more important things. And mm-hmm. certainly something as, as simple as I'd like to just have coffee, you know, coffee conversation with you for 20, 25 minutes. Tell me about your career. You know, those those sorts of networking I think those exist, and and those should still exist out there, and nothing beats that. Certainly, we have a lot of articles on SDN, and certainly online, and you've written many that are profiles of of various professionals, and so even reading some of those can get a little bit of a better idea. But I think, in short, the first major thing that I would always tell people to, uh, to understand is that all of these professions really rely on a network of mentoring and a community. So one of the best things to do is as you're shadowing or as you, and I will t- talk on the dental side for short. Sure, you know, you could do shadowing, you could ultimately become a dental assistant. But one of the things that you probably want to also be involved with is seeing, you know, how did these dentists, most of whom are, you know, in individual private practices, how do they commun- communicate with each other? Do they talk to each other about research? Do they, How do they meet? Because um, they're not in a hospital setting in the same way that you probably could you know, you could see a neurology department and so forth. So, so there's a network. So the networking that exists among dentists and also for physicians, you know, go to those conferences Uh, for dentists. They have journal clubs of their own that they all convene and they will talk about research and they'll, they'll do all of that under the auspices of their own dental societies locally or statewide or something. So I think one of the, I think one of the underappreciated Pieces of networking that exist out there that I would always push is going to these these local um, professional organization meetings, just get a sense of what are the big topics that they're really interested in, whether it's, you know, financial, whether it's technological or whatever else just start listening and, and and sort of breathing, if you will, the language and sort of the energy of that these professions have. And I think that is just as important and is certainly very underappreciated that we don't document this on the application. But I think the more you have that insight, the more energy I think you can get a sense for yourself that this is a profession that you really are curious about. You really want to go into it a lot. And, and, and I think that's uh, that goes with just about all the other health professions, too. Optometries has theirs, the vet programs have, I mean, veterinary medicine has yeah. theirs, mm-hmm. and so forth. So um, I think really taking pro- advantage of the professional organizations that are close by uh, is really important.
0: That's a great advice to me. Um, my My eldest grandson is 19. He's trying to figure out what he wants to do with himself and he was recently talking to, to me and I said, and he, he doesn't know what he wants to do. Um, and I was saying, well, you know, if you were my client, I would be advising you to set up coffee chats. Well, take people to lunch, people who are doing things that I think might be appealing to you. Maybe that you don't even think might be appealing to them. Find out what their day is like, find out what they do, what they like, what they dislike, what's useful preparation for the field. Or as you say, what is the language of the field? What are the, the topics of interest the the you know the frustrations the the good things you know um all fields have them so for, and the best way to learn about it is from people in the trenches yeah yeah know?
1: and one of the things that i i mean i don't have kids especially you know kids around your son's age um i know there's a lot of reliance on like you know social media and specifically my grandson nowadays. not my son it's
0: like my oh, my, your grandson, your grandson. my grandson thank you <laughs>
1: sorry i see it corrected. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, you know, many, many students in their, like, teens to mid-20s, you know, many of them are relying on, like, the short film videos, so the TikToks, the Instagrams, and um, I don't know whether this so-called age of the influencer is a little bit overblown for this this. Um, particular generation. (laughs) But um, I I just tell people that, you know, don't just rely on those images that you see from those short films. I mean, I think even many of us know that a lot of those videos tend to probably be way too optimistic in terms of, you know, showing what they want to show you. And they don't really tell you other sort of things that maybe you really need to know and understand. Um, So I mean, you, I, I, I know there's many dentist offices out there that are doing their own small little TikTok videos just and me- medical students and dental students that are doing short videos, even those run by admissions offices that will give their Instagram account and let other students take over it for a day or two. Um, but just be aware that that's a great m- image. It's meant to be uplifting. It's meant to encourage you and give you confidence, but nothing beats a good sit down. And I agree, nothing beats a good sit down coffee conversation that hopefully leads to a shadowing opportunity. That leads to you know a lot of other other neat opportunities. Where you really get to see all facets of the career, um, right. and not just sort of the highlights. So,
0: you can't have a dialogue with a video, right? <laughs> yeah. So, now you did a lot of research in the in the earlier parts of your career. One of the more common questions on SDN, I think, is: Do I need research? Do I have enough research? Do they need research to apply to medical school, MDDO programs? And if they do, why? They plan to be so, clinicians.
1: Yeah, so so first of all, I will admit my bias during my period of time <laughs> as, a, I mean, I have my PhD, of course. And during my period of time at George Mason, obviously, I, I actually spent a year of time working as an, under, as an interim director of undergraduate research. So I want to be a big proponent of research in general, especially as it comes to the fact that you're gonna apply what you're learning. And in medicine, in dentistry, in professional fields, it's not just as important for you to have the foundational textbook knowledge, but you have to know how to apply what you learned in situations that are warranted in terms of you you know, looking at things. Certainly with regards to academic competencies, being academically curious means understanding you don't have all the answers. How do you find the answers? How can you get to create new knowledge? And, you know, there's a lot of value in that. And that's why you get, you know, master's and PhDs and especially PhDs and doctorates. It's sort of the pursuit of, you know, creating new knowledge and looking for things and looking for patterns that are germane. So I I say this very nicely in that it's, it's a conflict to hear a lot, especially of, of, health professionals who will say, you know, really research isn't that highly valued in the application review, even though you see on the MSR, like 80 plus percent of people that go into your school have research, but you don't really value that as much as when it comes to, you know, getting into medical school. I, I warn people a little bit in that one of the things that's happened in undergraduate education is we want to have more people become more creative to look at research as an outcome of their degree. And so when I see that there's 80% of applicants or whatever that have research, I just, I, from my standpoint, it's a result of the fact that you got a bachelor's degree and we've been encouraging you to do some level of research, whether it's a capstone project, a bonafide research project or whatever else. And that has value when it comes to at least telling people that you have a good understanding of what, it, that what you're learning is not finite in the health professions fields, and that you're going to be learning how to read and, you know, infer from research papers that might inform you about what treatments are appropriate or inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So there's a that's where research is very important, and not that you've been on papers, and not that you've published a whole ton, or that you've gone to conferences, so much. Not, not to me in terms of just looking at you as a bona fide health professional outlet. All of those are very important to me nevertheless, <laughs> but I think the real value is if you think about it just strictly as competencies and what are the things that are going to be important to you in a health professional learning environment, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to have to learn you know, what a systematic review is and what's involved in that. Well, someone, if you, beca- if you go into medical school or various programs you might be involved in, crafting up one of these systematic reviews. So I, I kind of warn people ahead of time that unless you're very specifically geared towards doing what I want to do, which is I want to be in a research lab where I want to do this, 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 and that, and I want to be involved with these molecular technologies to address this type of a problem or a challenge in, in health, uh, autoimmune disease, or whatever else like that, then, then that, there's a different conversation <laughs> that you can have
0: yeah no, uh, that is a very different conversation
1: yeah for most people research is important but not to the depths that you know those types of other outcomes
0: right do you feel that that research let's say helps in terms of reading research articles that medical you know the doctors are expected to read or in terms of developing critical thinking uh, abilities
1: Well, a lot of different things. So being in a research environment means that, yes, you get to be exposed to the highly scholarly language and the data analysis that's involved with being involved in a research project. And clearly, you know, you'll be tested a little bit about that on the MCAT. Also, most research projects, you're not doing it by yourself. So you're going to be learning how to work with other people. So there's a teamwork environment. There's a communication skills environment that you're going to be developing. And, you know, when you're working with people who, are you know have more seniority than you? You might be working with a master's student or a postdoc, or uh, you know, as well as a PI. Understanding that 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 culture of being an academic research is also an important piece too. So it's not just about the papers; it's also about what happens in when you finally get to that point to get to that paper, and so many other things that you can benefit from again on in terms of pre-professional competencies. Being involved in research you know, quote unquote, really helps you along those lines too. That's the important part about being involved because you're applying your work, you're communicating new knowledge, you have opportunities hopefully to present to other people. Maybe you have opportunities to get a small little research grant either for yourself or for your lab. And and again, you have teamwork also happens as well too. So Um, And I will also say even for dentists, for those who are the aspiring dentists, depending on the lab, you also have, you know, you may have fine manual dexterity where you're doing a lot of things in small spaces under microscopes, using tweezers or using whatever else have you. A lot of fine manual dexterity examples I've seen in dental applications come from labs and I'm like, yeah, I'm there for you. I, (laughs) I know about how hard it is to pipette for hours and hours on end and doing all the micro dissections that you're doing because I did that. So um, so it helps. It helps. You just have to kind of know.
0: All right. You have to connect it to what you want to do ultimately. What are some common mistakes that you see applicants make when you are reviewing applications, either for dental school or for medical school?
1: I think most people don't recognize that when you're talking applications, you know, it's it there it always is the question of how do you stand out among the right. volume of applicants that are there. And whenever I've gone and I've given a talk at various pre-health programs and clubs, I actually turn the question around a little bit more And that the advice that I want to make sure that the mistakes that I see is people trying to really focus too much on being different and not realizing that you still need to be the same in certain aspects. You still need the bread and butter, you know, grades have to be solid, very solid letters of recommendation, all this sort of stuff. The things that you... Think are going to make you unique, aren't really going to make you as unique as you believe. So that's one of the big mistakes that people are like putting all their eggs into the uniqueness basket and sort of not remembering that everything else about you really counts too. The other common mistake that I think applicants overestimate is you know, when I wind up reading 1,000, 2,000, however many thousands of applications, after a while you start seeing patterns. And you start seeing how people rely on certain templates that they rely on either through friends or what's on the internet or whatever else. Now, I I grant AI may change things a little bit, but you wind up seeing a lot of people who I don't know who has given them advice on how to write a personal statement. But you will see every variation of every person's advice given out there about how to write a personal statement. And there will be a, a time where it's like, oh yeah, it's one of those personal statements where this person gives a personal story first. <laughs> then they talk, or they start off with the, oh my god, this is a this is an emergency room setting, so you know there's noise, 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 and then this is the patient, and this is how it took. You see all these patterns. It's just fascinating <laughs> to see that, and I, I think people understand. People think that their personal statement is everything, and it's not. It's the whole. It's the whole package, and so. Back so back to holistic
0: admissions.
1: It's holistic admissions, but it really is the whole package. It's all your essays. It's all of your data. And it's not just, I wrote a fantastic personal statement. I'm like going, yeah, great. But I see every other personal statement there, too. So, again, trying too hard to be unique and then, you know, just realizing that a lot of people's, um, you know, relying too much on templates that exist, whether, you know, it's on the Internet or we give them out or something like that. Don't become too beholden for them. You still have to communicate who you are as a person and not necessarily follow a template because you feel that that's the best way to show who you are. Not quite. <laughs> so may, so may. That, that, those are at least some, some general mistakes on the application side that you that become noticeable after the first couple hundred. <laughs>
0: Now that we've dealt with the negative and what you can do wrong, let's, let's talk about what you can do. Right. I find your, your, your comment fascinating about you know, if you try so hard to be unique, you might just fail to to fit in. And I have for many years said that you have to fit in and stand out. You have to do both. Mm-hmm. If you want to show, you're going to contribute something distinctive. You have to, in some way, stand out, but you do have to show that you belong, belong, right? So um it's it's this kind of balancing act. And and frankly, the best way to stand that to stand out is to be authentic.
1: I agree with that. And obviously I agree with that totally. I, I think that the the language in terms of how you stand out has changed a little bit. And I think part of it is the mission-driven element of applications. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ways to stand out is to essentially show that you fit their mission, or at least you have a very strong allegiance or alignment with a school or a general school's general overall mission. So I I say this, you know, in terms of like, you know, what makes you stand out? Yeah, I see that you are working with homeless communities in a lot of your different activities. And yeah, the activity itself makes you stand out, but the value is showing me that you're lever- that you can leverage and you can make the connection of that experience to something that, let's just say, our medical school or our university does with regards to helping people who are homeless. I think that's if if you make the connection that that to me, when it comes to reviewing, it's not the activity itself, but it's how you connect the activity to mission and to what we offer as a school. That then that makes you stand out.
0: That much right. more to the. But review, you can only so. do that in a secondary or a secondary application or a supplemental application or or, or interview. You you can't right. do that in the primary, obviously. It's, um, it's harder
1: unless it really is like this is like my main reason to going to a particular spot. Again, that's all strategy. That's all strategy. Right. With- Overall application
0: process. So, so again, getting to the positive. I never quite got to my question when I when I started. It. I got <laughs> distra- I distracted myself. Um, what's your advice for approaching the MCAS application or, or any of the CAS applications? I mean, we talked about there's there's you know there's the primary. They usually have some activities. The MCAS has its most meaningful experiences. Now there there's a few other essays that are that are coming up uh, in terms of lived experiences. How how would you recommend that? an applicant who's a, and it's a it's probably a few months off till the applicants really start sitting down with the primary but you know how do you recommend that they approach it and do you recommend I saw I saw recently somebody say write the secondaries first and I'm thinking well the secondaries might change but anyways what would you recommend
1: I think one of the things I know you recognize is I'm a little bit uh, I will I will put a little bit more of an edge on a lot of my advice. It's like yes, I agree with everybody, but push push a little bit beyond the boundaries. So one of the things that I've always told people is okay, yes, the CAS applications in general should not be changing year after year as well. So um, many advisors like me and other people, if you are in say an undergraduate institution, you will hear a lot of times that even as early as the so-called sophomore year, or the year the year before the year before you apply. We actually will encourage students to just say, hey, why don't you just go ahead, sign up for getting access to an AMCAS application and look at it. As long as you don't send money, most of the things are gonna pretty much stay the same. Well, obviously with this past year, we have the other impactful experiences essay coming in, but that's a little bit of an exception. But right. for the most part, we've always had, I've, I've always had, and I've always heard many of my other peers also say, you know, it doesn't hurt for you to go ahead and just type in your information. Get used to what's being asked. You know, if you have questions, you're not applying yet. You feel free to ask, you know, whether if you have a pre-health advisor or if you do want to ask the AMCAS help team, go ahead and ask them for help if you want some clarification about the application. That's all there for you. And again, the application generally won't change. So I've actually encouraged people to go into the MCAS application the year before or any other application the year before you actually apply, just don't send them any money. Many of the CAS applications actually will take, has taken advantage of this fact and will let you roll over your personal data to the following year if you, even if you didn't submit your application, So you've actually already saved time by doing that. So I, I just, as I said, it's like, Just be familiar with that process. Go in and just see what it's about. I also will say one other thing to add on to that is I'd also encourage people to investigate the fee assistance programs also at the same time you're doing this too, because when you realize how much money it costs to apply to AMCAS and apply and get your tests and all this other stuff, if you are eligible for fee assist- for the fee assistance programs of any of these CASs, apply as early as you possibly can so you can yeah. get the benefits early. So even, you know, that's a time where I would just tell people. Have you looked into FAP, the FAP programs and what's available? Uh, We published an article last year because I actually did a lot of research and just said, here are the qualifications and here's what people need for the various FAPs for all the health professions programs. I think we're going to publish it again in early January of 2024 so people can find it again because it's such an important piece um, just to know that you have all of that there. It's so much of a, it's nice to know that you can submit the application and not have to pay anything if you've got this letter beforehand. So, um, so I think really giving them that insight of the fee assistance program helping you so much, not just with the application, because you do need to know those nuts and bolts too, but also possibly test prep and all this other, all the other, these other resources that. Um, at least for Double they can provide for you. For ACOMIS, I know they. Pro- I think they used to provide a uh, an online mock interview account that you can also participate in. Those sorts of things exist that are out. So that's the the general answer, which is on top of it another answer of how one can really prepare for the application process. Mm-hmm. Don't overlook you know money that you probably could use uh, that people are okay. willing to give you.
0: That's great advice. Do you recommend journaling like earlier in, you yeah. know? Before you're ready to submit to all those volunteer experiences, the research experiences, the community service experiences, do you recommend journaling?
1: I would de- definitely recommend journaling. You're going to wind up doing so much self-reflection in this whole process, <laughs> and, and you're even going to do a whole lot once you're in school too. Um, I, among the many books that I would also I would have in my Reserve Library as a pre-health advisor that I would encourage students, if you ever wanted to look at stuff that I would encourage you to read, sometimes there are compilations of essays that are written by current medical students that you know are edited, obviously. Medical humanities is a big thing, but they will edit these essays and they'll publish them So, um, into various books. So you get a chance to read not personal statements per se, but you can read all of these essays that are out there about you know, how individual students and or residents struggle with certain circumstances when it comes to, you know, end of life or challenges with regards to communication with patients and so forth. I'm a big proponent of reading a lot of the medical humanism essays. I think the, Gold, the Arnold Gold Foundation, I think they just released their 2023 award winners of the uh, medical humanities essays. And so, you know, you get a chance to read through some of those, but I would definitely journal and I would read other people's I would read other people's reflections and try to get there too because but it is a skill that you ultimately will be doing so it doesn't hurt we won't test you on it until later
0: no but it's, it's, <laughs> actually one of our consultants is a director I think of a, a medical humanities program or medical narrative program at her college so one of the things one of the other challenges I think that medical school applicants have is sometimes they're not sure they're going to get into allopathic programs into MD programs so they apply to osteopathic programs knowing that ultimately they can still be a clinician but they're backup programs and of course osteopathic programs don't like to be backup programs they they want to be applied to f- for their own merit and because applicants identify with their mission which is a little bit different from the allopathic mission how do they not how would you recommend that they not look not appear as a just applying to osteopathic schools as backups
1: so i I come from the world where sometimes our faculty um, at the dental school would be very clear dental school is not a backup to medical school (laughs) so this is years ago that wasn't
0: that was years ago that was true
1: exactly that's true today and i it's definitely a lot i don't think it's as prevalent for the dental i also don't think it's as prevalent nowadays for do as well just because You know, there's so much that has changed in the most recent, in in recent time with regards to promote, with more dental schools having opened, many more osteopathic physicians are available and are more prominent, including some that became surgeon general, the, you know, the president's, you know, uh, physician and so forth like that. So you'll see a lot more, um, I think there's, you know, while there's still a little bit more work to be done, there's a lot of work that, again, if you look at the educational, like, industry and the medical industry there's a lot of work that's being done to really try to emphasize the equivalence of DOs to MDs. So I know there's still vestiges of people who think that applying DO is kind of the backup, and you know their their metrics are a lot lower. So you know you, it, it's well, first of all, let's just dispel this and there is no there is no like safety in medical right. admissions, and DO right. for sure is not should not be considered the safety. But they also have a very remarkable, you know, are very remarkably mission oriented. Many of them definitely are. And so just thinking that you didn't get in, you know, you want to get into, you know, certain prestigious universities and you're just going to apply DO as the backup. I think kind of you're shortchanging yourself in real life in, in doing the homework on really focusing on the mission, which, again, every school really is focused on. Um, so many of the DO programs that I know of that are closest to me over here are very much geared towards rural medicine and underserved medicine as well. And they have set up all of these different programs, clinical as well as community-based programs to really help their students gain much more appreciation of what some of the challenges are for underserved and rural communities. And so if you think going in, you know, and some of them have research opportunities too. I, I'm, you know, don't, you know, I don't. I don't want to dispel right. that. This sort of thing is a do
0: PhD also.
1: Yes. So, you know. so I think many of the advisors on the advisor side, we've been changing that. Uh, I think a lot of us who are on SDN, many of them are DOs. We've been also emphasizing that that's that separation. You know, even though you have that concern, isn't really as as stark a difference as you're believing it's going to be, and it may change so that that difference is much more blurry by the time you graduate so basically we just tell people look at many of the places where there are hospitals there are DOs working side by side with mds and you know it doesn't you know i don't want anybody to think of them as a backup or safety because that's not that's definitely not true but they are another option and in terms of your education understand what that option is what are those opportunities many do schools have tons of seats that are available and they're trying to fill them too and so the reason why it could be a quote safety or a backup, or the numbers are lower, is because you know, in terms of who they're trying to admit, generally are going to be people with relatively lower scores because many of them don't have the same, you know, IV type privileges. I guess in terms of their education or their preparation, and so I always will tell people, you know, do is another option. I would certainly say, you know, don't disregard it. If you really want to be a physician, that's an option. And so really investigate it, do your networking, <laughs> do what you need to do to be as informed as possible.
0: Right. Try and shadow a DO or get experience with osteopathic medicine so that when you do apply, you, you can talk knowledgeably about it or or you're invited to interview. Yeah. So we've talked about allopathic medicine and osteopathic medicine a little bit. And those are, you know, two very related paths. To becoming a clinician but how do you recommend applicants choose the schools that they should apply to
1: well in terms of choosing the schools um first of all obviously get you, all you the want to throw a
0: dartboard at you know let's throw a Darth dartboard let's throw a dartboard
1: first <laughs> right. um when i had to well so A lot of times I would go with the 150 mile radius rule. And again, this is coming a little bit from the dental admission side of things where it's a little more regionalistic, but I also don't think that med schools are any less regionalistic in certain cases. It's just that there's 140 plus of them, uh, whereas there's 70, 60, 70 dental schools. So behavior for dental admissions is a little bit different from, from medical admissions in that vein, in that a lot of cases, they, they really like people who are within 150 miles of where they're located no matter what their state residency is there's yeah. very very few that are going to be like I want to be like a national you know a national medical school you know from coast to coast and yeah. I, I think very rarely will you find those schools so certainly in terms of picking schools there's a lot of different things i'm uh, I'm in the camp of of holistic review and mission mission alignment so know what your own mission is and find schools that fit your mission and also understand the statistics. So whatever your home, whatever your home area is or whatever your home state is and the surrounding states around it, definitely look at those. But if you want to move someplace else, kind of you have to kind of think a little bit ahead in terms of costs and all those other things, because that's what we had to learn when we were in dental, in dental admissions. Cause it's like, yeah, I would love to go to Penn. <laughs> or I would love to go to Harvard, or I would love to go to UCSF. But, you know, if you go out there, there's a huge cost of attendance, ch- uh, you know, challenge that you have to uh, accommodate. And that's going to be the same thing for most med schools. So well, cost of
0: living in certainly two of those locations is pretty high.
1: Exactly. So, so I think one of the things for sure is understand the people, you know, understand where do you feel that you want to go? Where are the programs that really serve the communities you want to be serving? Whatever your specialty winds up being, and that should hopefully divide, you know, divide enough. Maybe the 140 or plus. If you have the DO schools, 160 some odd schools, or 180 schools, you know, you want to get it ultimately down to about 25 very, very select schools. I basically say, if you were on The Bachelor, you start off with like 100 people that you're trying to date. No, you don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> if you uh, you want to ultimately get to a point where you have a very reasonable number of about 20, 25, maybe 30, I would certainly say are the ideal numbers and really focus your attention on why you would go to any one of those schools if given the opportunity. It's an investment of your time at a minimum for 2 years I tell people. And so but I would want to know what are the experiences that you need to be the doctor you want to be. And you know what are the experiences that you have with the communities that you want to serve uh, if you know yourself you know with regards to how you learn what are the ways that you feel that you can learn that are, work best for you what are some more challenging modes of learning that you want to you can grow into so I, there's a lot of this discussion out there i mean there's the big 30 questions that C has but i think the the main concerns that i know i usually will focus on is mission Do you fit the mission of the school or do you fit the demographic that they're looking for in terms of their regional areas or the populations that they tend to serve most with regards to the patients that you're going to be seeing? And are you really the type of person, the other piece is, are you the type of person that's willing to learn, uh, willing to adapt, willing to roll with the punches, as it were, depending on where you wind up going? It certainly doesn't hurt to talk to current students at all of these schools. AMSA, ASDA, whatever the chapters are, they all usually will have a pre-professional subcommittee. They're the ones that will also be part of recruitment fairs. They'll also be part of orientation. They'll do all of these other little things, but they really want to make sure that they can help identify and encourage people to come to their school. So I think a lot of people who are thinking about applying are afraid of approaching current students. And so I, I really try to tell people these are going to be the people you're going to lean on and rely on for you to survive your first year of school. <laughs> so you might as well talk to these people. You're getting uh, back to the whole
0: coffee chat idea that we discussed at the exactly. beginning of the podcast. It,
1: exactly. So get used yeah. to oh, that. Oh, look exactly. who's
0: here. <laughs> this is cat.
1: sorry, she <laughs> likes to be on uh, Zoom calls. Willie, right.
0: come on. She can, she can add in too. <laughs> What's your advice for people concluding that they are rejected this cycle? By the time this show airs, it'll probably be the end of January. Some schools, a few, will have finished sending out interview invitations, and most of the other medical schools will finish within the next six weeks. Well, what's your recommendation if someone concludes they're not getting accepted this cycle?
1: Well, obviously, there's a number well, as, as having been a director of admissions and being the person who would either re- write or review the usual form letters that we would send back to students asking Mm -hmm. why they were rejected. Obviously, the usual things that we will tell you is, you know, think very reasonably in terms of your academic qualifications. Think very reasonably about what your overall experience is into the healthcare field that you decide to go into, medicine, dentistry, or whatever. How have you shown that? And certainly, as I mentioned very, very strongly, the mission fit piece. Really understand that mission fit is very, very important. I also will tell you, submitting an early application is probably the most important factor among everything. It doesn't matter how well you align with your schools on your list. It doesn't matter if you have the best, you know, 98 plus percentile on all of the various tests. If you don't submit a relatively early application, and I think if you go on SDN, you'll see our various rules. You know, I have the July a July 4th rule in my in my mind, which is if you don't submit your, you know, submit it before you know, July 4th, or if you're a Canadian, July 1st, because that's your independence. The year, that's your Canadian. In,
0: the day. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. if you
1: submit it by then, at least target yourself to, to focus that as your target date. It doesn't have to hit exactly on that date. You can be a week or so late but you know you would be very surprised and what about how how backlogged we all will wind up getting with applications who submit by all the way up to mid July because that will take us that that will take us to review all the way out to at least October for many many schools with no. just that group by itself so if it's timing make sure you you are really on time And really get everything together so you submit as when you are available to do that. I also will say with a little small caveat, you don't need to submit on the first day available. I say this because it's very easy for people to submit. And we say this on SDN too. It's very easy for people to submit on the first day possible, send in their money, and they realize after they look through it, they made some big mistakes and they can't change them. So that's why at least there's a little bit of a, you know, there's some buffer in there that hopefully by end of June, or early July, should give yourself enough time to just make sure everything is spot perfect in terms of what you wrote and it's what you want to submit and just go from there. Um, I, and I think I think if most people do that, that's fine. The other area that people usually wind up making mistakes on is they either apply to too many schools or they underestimate the effort having applied to so many schools. So in a lot of cases, they may not have been accepted because they clearly ran out of energy. They didn't adhere to various timelines or deadlines to get certain, like a CASPer exam wasn't in on time, or they waited too late, or they indicated they were going to take their MCAT in August and they didn't take it or so. There's a lot of weird things that get thrown into the mix that if you don't have everything all together and you submit it by July, you just sort of put yourself at risk that one of these weird little nuances in application processing can can trip you up. And you just Mm -hmm. really don't want that. So so, so it's as much an acknowledgement of process as it is about your profile. Got
0: it. It's great advice. Thank you. What do you wish I had asked you?
1: So I think one of the inter- whenever I do interviews, sometimes I believe I, I should ask the question to my interviewers about the magic wand question. So if you had a magic wand and you wanted to change one aspect of something, of an admissions process or something, what would that be? So that, in, in answering that question for myself, and I think you realize this too if you're, on, if you're online, I wish we could be much more, more transparent. And in terms of getting giving feedback to students on why they didn't get in, I wish we would have more admissions professionals be Mm -hmm. more confident that they can tell people without being fearful that you know I don't know they you know they might get sued they're (laughs) going to get sued or something else like that. I wish that could happen. The other thing that I wish I could have a magic wand for, so I'm sorry I'm going to do it a second second wish is that I really wish more admissions professionals would you know, sort of swap places with applicants somehow or another in some dream or some sort of weird, you know, movie world, someone who is a very grizzled old veteran on the admissions committee one day swaps places with a 23 year old applicant and goes through their lived experiences about, you know, as an applicant and some of the challenges that they've had to overcome and so forth like that to really be a little more understanding of some of the some of the difficulties people really have just so that the admissions screeners and or readers who are the professionals really understand that a lot of times these students are really sacrificing a lot they are really telling us an immense story that they're only limited by our process they're only limited by the number of characters that we allow them to to, to write essays um, the small snapshot that we get from their letters of recommendation and so forth like that so I I, I Part of me can kind of wish that, for in some cases, we would have a way that we could just body swap people <laughs> in admissions with applicants every once in a while, just so that there's a better appreciation for really what 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 the applicants are bringing to the table.
0: They work really hard. They work really really hard. I'll tell you that mm. much. Right. So, Dr. Chuck, I think we're running out of time. I want to thank you very much for joining me for the show. And thanks for sharing your experience and perspective. Where can listeners find out more about HPSA and Student Doctor Network?
1: Well, obviously, if you don't know about Student Doctor Network, we do still have our um, studentdoctor.net web address. And you can certainly feel free to search us on Google and find us there our forums are still forums.studentdoctor.net if you're interested in the health professional student association our web address is hpsa.org org and if you're interested in certainly our becoming a student doctor course whether it's for you individually or for individuals who are aspiring applicants or even for people who want to bring this to their clubs or you know train pre health you know ambassadors for their student organizations or whatever else just so that they know a lot more about what it really takes to become a health professional, you know, please check us out on, on HIPSA.org as well. We have our YouTube site. We have our, we have at least Instagram and and Facebook pages. We're not big on TikTok, Sorry guys, <laughs> but uh, you should be able to find us. And I think we do have an Instagram page too, but uh, for sure, definitely check us out. And uh, and again, I, I'm more than happy to, uh, as I said, uh, you know, help anybody who has any questions about their application process. Even as I said, not just med school, but also dental and a lot of the other health professions. So,
0: definitely. No, I I know the the volume of advice, the quality of advice, quantity and quality is extremely impressive that uh, you you post on Student doc, Doctor Network and the forums. Also, some of the articles I've seen that you've written have been have been excellent. So we're going to link from the show notes at accepta.com slash 561 to studentdoctor.net, as well as to HPSA, uh, Health Professional Students Association. One last question on, on the association. Is this specifically for, for medical school applicants and students interested in serving in underserved communities, whether they're rural or urban, or is it for the larger medical school applicant and student community?
1: Well, we certainly uh, welcome everybody as possible. We just want to make sure we focus, especially our resources for individuals who do not know about our resources, who come from underserved or under, underprivileged backgrounds, such as rural backgrounds, to know that these are resources that are, are definitely available to you. But certainly the advice is is pretty universal for anyone who's applying to um, certainly medical school and and obviously the advice that we give on the forums is universal to any anyone anyone who's inquiring uh, as a future professional as well.
0: Great. Thank you again Dr. Czech. Now listener thank you too for tuning in to this our 561st episode. If you found the show worthwhile please make sure you don't miss any others. Subscribe through your favorite podcatcher. We have subscribe links at accepted.com slash 561. And reminder, you can download a complimentary copy of Med School Admissions, What You Need to Know to Get Accepted at accepted.com slash 561 download. Again, that's accepted.com slash 561 download. You can grab your copy now. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.